You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. I'm sick of sorrow, sick of pain, sick of hearing again and again that there's going to be peace on earth. Jesus, this song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat. Peace on earth. We hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history won't rhyme. So what's it worth? This peace on earth. Can you identify with the skepticism of those lyrics written 14 years ago by the band U2. We hear it every Christmas time. Peace on earth. Here we are again talking about peace. And yet hope and history don't seem to rhyme. And yet that lyric is intriguing to me because Bono sings, I'm tired of hearing again and again that there's going to be peace on earth. Why are we hearing that again and again? The reason we hear it again and again, especially at this time of year, is because the Bible is relentless about the vision of peace on earth. The Bible continually, consistently promises over and over again that there will be peace on earth. The Bible speaks of a day when the lion will lie down with the lamb. The Bible speaks of a day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. The Bible continually tells us there will be peace on earth. Okay, but what about now? Is this peace some pie-in-the-sky future reality? Is this something we dream of and maybe long for? Or is it, can it be a present reality? Should we be optimistic or pessimistic about this peace? Is there any hope that we might see an increase of peace or should we just sort of hunker down and wait for the end of the world hoping that Jesus will make things better? This morning I want us to see the connection between the good news of the gospel and the implications of that good news. The good news of the gospel is that the future peace that God promises has come into time and space. Indeed, we get a taste of it now. Because Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead, we can have peace. Peace is a true, present, possible reality for the people of God. And what that is designed to do then is to usher us into a life marked by peace. A life that makes us peacemakers and peace bringers. In fact, the Bible continually in its language of sowing and reaping hints at this reality. We're familiar with the idea of sowing and reaping, right? We live in an agricultural part of the country and we know that that the harvest that many farm families brought in just a few weeks ago is the reaping of a crop that was sown back in the spring. Sowing. Waiting. Reaping. That's the nature of how things work. And, and Jesus gives us a hint that this is how his kingdom works too. In fact, notice what the Apostle James says in James chapter 3, verse 18. He says, A harvest of righteousness, 
is sown in peace by those who make peace. So there's this harvest of righteousness, there's this harvest of goodness, of truthfulness, there's this new heavens and new earth that we await. That harvest is sown in peace by those who make peace. To say it another way, God through the gospel wants to bring peace into your life now so that you begin to sow seeds of peace in the world so that we together can experience the harvest of righteousness that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. So I want us to look today at the images of peace that the prophet Isaiah puts before us. Isaiah, as you've seen already, is a very image-driven poet. He, he wants to put before us word pictures, images that grab us, that awaken our imagination, that, that give us something to hold on to, some picture to grab hold of, of what it is that the gospel promises. And so this morning I want us to see three images of peace in the book of Isaiah. We'll be in chapters 60, 61, and 62 if you want to turn there this morning in your Bible. Three images of peace, three word pictures that help us understand what God's peace is. The first image is light. The peace of light. It's it's true, isn't it, that darkness is a peace disturber. The reason we call our worst fears nightmares and not daymares is because they tend to trouble us at night, right? There's something about darkness that awakens and heightens fear and uncertainty and insecurity. Many of you know our church just bought this Burt Street Chapel that we're going to use as a ministry headquarters down on 36th and Burt Street. And we've been down there working, lots of volunteers sort of putting in time and energy to get this property up to speed. One of the things we've been doing recently is putting in some flooring. So last week we had worked and gotten almost done, but there's this one spot that wasn't finished. So one night after dinner I said, you know what, I'm just going to go down for a couple hours and knock out this final spot. So I got in my car, drove down to the Bird Street Chapel, 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, in the dark, and proceeded to freak myself out for the next two hours. (laughs) Because I don't know why, it's just a big, empty building, but it's dark out, right? And so every noise, every strange creaking sound, it's kind of like, it's just, place is freaky. (laughs) When the Bible speaks of sin and evil as darkness, it's because these things are fearful to us. They awaken our trepidation, our sense of uncertainty. They disturb our Peace. And so one of the images God uses to describe the peace the gospel brings is the image of light coming into and triumphing over darkness. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. You're going to see this at the beginning and the end of this chapter. Isaiah uses this image as bookends to chapter 60. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. 
and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Because of God's glory upon his people. The nations which are shrouded in darkness will come to that light. Something about light that's magnetic, isn't there? Light attracts us. This time of year, our city puts on the Holiday Lights Festival, and I've seen multiple Instagrams of many of you that have gone down to see this, right? So you bundled up in your winter gear, you got in your car, you drove downtown, you parked far away and walked, you maybe brought a warm beverage with you, all for the sake of seeing what? Lights. That's all it is. Lights. But in this time of year, when darkness covers the earth, We're attracted to light. At this time of year when we're longing for some sense of joy and peace, there's something about light that intrinsically connects to those ideas for us. And see, there's a spiritual metaphor there. Isaiah says the gospel is like that. The gospel is light that comes into our darkness. I want you to notice the preposition upon in this paragraph. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. This gives us a hint into how the gospel works. See, the good news of the gospel that Jesus brings, it is not a change of opinion. It's not reorienting some facts in your mind. It's not assenting to some statements of belief. Rather, it's God's glory resting upon us. It's God present through his Holy Spirit, bringing light into our lives. Something changes. We become different. There's a peace and a light that is upon us. Now, we have a tendency as Americans to read our Bible individualistically, and so we read passages like this, and we see them as good news for us. We see, oh, that's that's interesting, but I want you to see, if you look across the page at verse 14, the us, the you that this is talking about is Zion, the city of the Lord, a communal metaphor for the people of God. We together are a light-bearing people. This promise of light is for us, not just you. We together are a community of light. As the gospel dwells among a people, as the gospel changes and transforms, not just a person, but a people, what happens is there's an increase of light in a city. There's an increase of peace in a city. There are communities of light that begin to spring up in a city. And nations, peoples in darkness are drawn and attracted to that light. This is the nature of how the gospel goes forward. One of my family's favorite vacation spots is St. Augustine, Florida. It's the oldest city in North America. And there on the coast of southern Florida is the St. Augustine Lighthouse, one of these great networks of lighthouses along the eastern coast that are a a heyday or harken back to a heyday of shipping when this was how ships would navigate the terrain. And a lighthouse casts a beam of light that can be seen for miles. It, it sheds its light so that all within eye distance right, can see that light and know, oh, there's a lighthouse. All the ships within view of that lighthouse know, here's something to be noticed. A gospel-centered church, a network of gospel-centered churches are like lighthouses. 
They cast a beacon of light throughout a city. They're, they're designed to be up high so that people can see this light. The reason we publicly preach the gospel and worship together is to invite the city to see, to take notice of this light. And yet you all know if you went to St. Augustine that though you might be able to see that light from 10, 20 miles away, there's some dark streets and back alleys in St. Augustine where that light's totally obscured, right? So to really have light in a city, not only do you need lighthouses, but you need little communities of light. You need that light to get down into all the neighborhoods and streets and alleyways of a city. And so as we think about what it means for us to be people of light, we need not just churches proclaiming the gospel, we need gospel communities. We need little communities of light in neighborhoods and zip codes and streets all over the city. Bringing the light of the gospel into those places. God intends that as the gospel changes us, it brings light into darkness, and then we bring light into darkness just by our existence. By being the people of God within nations covered in darkness. At the end of this passage, Isaiah comes back to this same metaphor. Look at it with me. Chapter 60, verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Notice how it connects mourning and darkness. This is speaking future tense of a day that will come, right? When we won't need the sun or the moon anymore because God will be our everlasting light. But notice what Isaiah says, that future has already begun. That future of God as your light is present now as the light of the gospel has come to a people in darkness. And when Jesus Christ is born, the people around him recognize the word of the prophets. Those living in darkness have seen a great light. So the first image Isaiah gives us for peace, the peace that Jesus brings into the world, is the image of light. If you're here this morning, the darkness of your sin, the darkness of your troubled conscience, the darkness of your despair can be changed, can be lifted through the light of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Isaiah gives us a second image, a second word picture in the next chapter. The peace, not just of light, but of reversal. Reversal. Things getting turned upside down. Look at Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. That's gospel. To whom? Who does this good news come to? To the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Notice the implication of what Isaiah is saying. If you do not mourn, if you are not poor, if you are not brokenhearted, then the gospel is not good news to you. It's just news. It's forgettable news like yesterday's Twitter feed or last week's newspaper or Bo Pelini getting fired. It's already happened, it's over, move on. 
But if you're broken, if you recognize that you're a captive, if you recognize your poverty, then the gospel is good news, present tense good news. So part of what it means for us to receive and embrace the gospel as good news is to understand a true reality of our condition. We are the poor, we are the captives, we are the brokenhearted. These are the people to whom the gospel comes, and if that's not how you see yourself, then the gospel won't be good news to you. Now notice the language of reversal. I want you to notice all the times in these following verses that you see the phrase, instead of. Something getting replaced. Verse 3. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Isaiah is saying over and over again in various ways, the gospel brings us peace by reversing our fortunes. We who once mourned experience gladness. We who once were faint of spirit gain strength. We who once were broken down and ruined are built up and repaired. We who once were imprisoned in shame are set free in honor and dignity. We who once were despairing and despondent find everlasting joy. The gospel is a great reversal. It's a turning upside down of the world. But only for those who find themselves on the bottom. Jesus said, right, the last shall be first and the first will be what? Last. We love stories of reversal, right? We love stories of things getting turned upside down. I'll prove to you, in fact, that you love this. It's just Sunday morning, so you're not sure what to do with it. You don't know if we should be cheering for this or just sitting there listening. But there are often stories of reversal that we cheer over, right? I'll give you one. From 1995 to 2012, the Kansas City Royals had a total of one winning season. One. In four of those seasons, they lost 100 games or more. And yet this past year, all of us watched in rapt anticipation as the formerly cellar-dwelling Royals made it to the postseason and then won the Division Series and then won the American League Championship Series and then went all the way to Game 7 of the World Series and came within one lucky swing of the bat of being the World Champions. And most of us cheered. Said, man, they're just three hours from here. I don't even like Kansas City, but that's awesome. Right? What made the Kansas City Royals of 2014 so intriguing? Reversal, right? The last becoming first, the underdog coming out on top. The gospel is a story as exciting as that. It's a story of reversal. It's peace to those who have no peace. It's hope to those who are hopeless. It's joy to those who are despondent. It's a turning upside down of what formerly was. Isaiah wants you to see this morning, are you brokenhearted? Are you bound up and lacking freedom? Are you chained in bondage to sin and brokenness and selfishness? Do you find yourself this morning faint of spirit or burdened by shame? 
the Lord has anointed me to bring you good news. The same good news that his true anointed, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, first brought. The good news of reversal. Instead of mourning, you can be glad. Instead of being bound, you can be free. Instead of shame, you can have joy. Instead of vengeance, you can know the Lord's favor. This is all possible through faith and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news, great news of an upside down world. Great news of a reversal of fortune. That those once at the bottom of the heap are those graced and blessed with the presence and favor of God through Jesus. This is the peace of reversal that is ours in the gospel. So Isaiah gives us the image of light. He gives us the image of reversal. And finally, in chapter 62, he gives us the image of renaming. Think for a minute about your name. Your name, after all, is how you distinguish yourself from everybody else in this room, right? If someone were to call your name out in the hall, you would turn around because your name distinguishes you from all the other people in this room, unless your name is Sarah, in which case there are 15 of you in this room, and we need a little more modifiers to make it clear which one we're talking to. Depending on what your name is, we can usually tell either where you were born or when you were born, right? So one of our friends and church planting partners is Pastor Arjuna. And I don't need to say anything else. As soon as I say his name, you're like, oh, he's not from here, right? Arjuna, not, not from Milwaukee, right? Not, not sort of a Dutch Reformed name, not, not a Lutheran name, not, a, not from North Dakota, right? Arjuna is a name from another culture. It signifies this person must have been born somewhere else. He must come from a different cultural heritage. Or let's imagine that your name is Reagan. I don't know if there's any Reagans here. If that is your name, we immediately know two things about you. Number one, your father's a Republican. <laughs> Number two, you were born during the Clinton administration. That's just, if I'm wrong, talk to me afterwards. If you know a Reagan that that does not apply to, I'd love to meet them. Your name identifies you, right? It distinguishes you from the rest of the mass of humanity out there. In a more serious way, think not just about the name you've been given by your family of origin, but think about the names you've been called. The hurtful names. The mocking names. Name-calling troubles us and disturbs our peace because it says something about our identity. When someone calls you a name, they're saying, this is, this is how you are. This is what you're defined by. This is what I think of you. Naming is significant. Whether we're speaking of the names we're given by family or the names we oftentimes hurtfully give to one another. Naming says something about our identity. And so with that in mind, look at Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 and 2. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new 
name that the mouth of the Lord will give. A new name, a new identity that God himself will give. Keep reading verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be called desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land shall be called married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Verse 11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Remember, the metaphor of Zion in the Bible is a metaphor for the people of God. This is speaking about you, Corndale. You have been given a new name. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of you who are identified with Jesus in faith and baptism have a new name. God has renamed you. You are now a people no longer forsaken. You are now the redeemed of the Lord. You are a city not forsaken. By the way, we're going to sing that song at the end of our worship this morning since it's here in the passage as a way of expressing this great truth that God has renamed us and then now sends us into our city that it might not be forsaken by the Lord. Through faith in Jesus, you have a new identity. So when you're baptized, you are renamed. You realize this, right? Baptism is a naming ceremony. It's a re-christening. So, You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what happens in baptism is that the old you, your old name, all that goes with your identity apart from Christ goes down into the water and is crucified with Christ. And you're brought out of that water, renamed, rechristened, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not erasing your individuality and your identity, but transforming it. You are now a new you, a renewed you. You're given a new name. You receive a new identity. And listen, your name is always both individual and communal, right? In our culture, your first name establishes the individuality, and your last name establishes the community, right? Some cultures, it's the other way around. But for us, your first name is what differentiates you from everybody else in the room, And your last name perhaps aligns you with people in the room, connects you to a heritage and to a history and to a family and to a lineage. Your name is both individual and communal. And the gospel is the same way. The gospel comes to change you as an individual and gives you a new name, but it also connects you to a people and to a history, to a worldwide people, the family of God, those baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I want to show you Isaiah's concern for one of the implications of that. Again, remember how individualistically we tend to think as Americans. How we tend to make the good news of the gospel good news that's just about us and our personal salvation. But I want you to see that because Isaiah understands the significance of renaming, he also understands the significance of the community that we're a part of. Look at 62 verse 1. He says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. 
until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Verse 7, give the Lord no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Now, there are some Christians out there that are really fascinated with the earthly city of Jerusalem. They're fascinated with the Middle East and with geopolitical intrigue. They, they, they spend a lot of time thinking about the physical, earthly city of Jerusalem. And with all due respect to those folks, their zeal is misplaced. They're passionate about the wrong thing, perhaps because they don't read enough poetry. Zion, or Jerusalem, as we've seen throughout the book of Isaiah, is always a metonym, a poetic image, for the people of God. Isaiah is not saying here, pray for the earthly city of Jerusalem at its latitude and longitude. He's saying, pray for the flourishing of the people of God. Give the Lord no rest until he establishes his people as a praise in all the earth. Prevail upon him in prayer until his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's prayer in many ways is just a restatement of what Isaiah is praying in chapter 62. This has implications for us, doesn't it? It means that because we've been renamed and identified into the people of God, we have a burden incumbent upon us then to care about God's people. We're not saved as a bunch of individuals, but as a people together in community. And so we are called to work and serve and labor and pray for Zion's sake. Listen to Ray Ortland framing out the implications of this passage. To God, church-hopping, self-protecting, me-first Christianity isn't even recognizable. Pause. So it shouldn't be recognizable to us either, right? And the fact that it is is part of our problem. He goes on, For Zion's sake defines a way of life that prays and works and tithes and gets involved. If your relationship with your church is ambiguous and sporadic and subject to convenience, the problem is not your relationship with your church. The problem is your relationship with Christ. He has made his loyalty clear. He delights in his church. To God, the most important thing in all of created reality is his church. Isaiah says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And so you and I, as those changed and transformed by the gospel and renamed through the grace of God, ought to be people who pour ourselves out for Zion's sake. Cromdale, let's be people that give sacrificially for Zion's sake, that work and serve and pray for Zion's sake. I want to take a minute, since we're talking about this, to just honor some of those who are doing this and are among us this morning. Uh, Three groups of people that consistently pour themselves out for the good of us, this particular body, this particular manifestation of the people of God. The first is the production team. 
many of the guys and gals who are back in the booth and who work behind the scenes to make Sunday morning happen. Their Sundays begin at 6 a.m. They argued with me between services and said they actually begin at 5.30, and I said that's because they're overachievers. <laughs> they get here at 6, they leave here at 1. It's a, it's, a, it's a day of full-time work for them, and they do it voluntarily. Why? Because they want to serve. They want you and I to be able to come here and worship. They want the band to have sound, and they want us to have slides, and they want us to be able to engage in worship together. I appreciate you guys, and I'm thankful for you. The second group of people that I want to honor and thank this morning are all of you who serve as teachers or volunteers in Corndale Kids, which is a bunch of you, because it takes a lot of bodies to make Corndale Kids happen every week. Let me give you a stat that might blow your mind. It blew my mind this week when I saw it. In just the past two months, October and November, we've served 363 kids in Corndale Kids. 363! Thankfully, they did not all show up on the same Sunday, or we would have had to plant a church and find a 12-year-old to pastor it. Okay, but I, that's kids zero to eight, so that doesn't even include our youth gospel communities. They're just kids zero to eight. 363 unique kids in the last two months have been served through Cormdale Kids, and that happens because a lot of you serve and give your time and energy. You get here early to set up. You stay late to put classrooms back to the way they are so that teachers don't hate us on, on Monday morning. The average church in America is 75 people. So we have four churches, almost five churches of kids among us. Thank you for serving. I'm just going to keep going because you guys are going to keep clapping, so I don't want to leave anybody out as long as we're doing this. No, there's, there's one final group. There's, there's many. There's one final group, and that's the, the security team. Um, you might not even know their security. They're just guys that wear Cormdale shirts and they're standing on the way when you come in. Their job is to keep you safe. Their job is to sort of protect the environment and serve and also to help set up and tear down and just facilitate what we do on Sunday morning. We, we tell these guys, you're kind of like a bouncer, only don't be scary. <laughs> only be scary to people who should feel like you're scary. So they spend a lot of their time thinking about how to be scary only to people who should find them scary. And, you know, that's a challenge. But uh, they're godly, gracious men who serve and get here early and help to make this uh, a safe and hospitable place for us to worship. So, look, Isaiah says, for Zion's sake, let's, let's give the Lord no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Give the Lord no rest until his people are flourishing and thriving, until there are new churches being planted, until every city in our region has thriving gospel life in it because of the communities of churches that are there. This is why we're committed to the work of church planting. This is why we're committed to the multiplication of gospel communities because we take this vision of peace seriously. Isaiah says, this is part of what it means to be the people of God. This is part of what it means to be bringers of peace. So, so these are the three images of peace Isaiah gives us. The peace of light, the peace of reversal, the peace of renaming. Isaiah 60, 61, and 62. So let's go back to where he began. How will God bring peace on earth? How will God bring peace on earth? Well, ultimately, 
at his return. Ultimately, he's coming back to establish a world of peace and justice. But not only future. God is right now sowing a harvest of righteousness through people of peace. People who know the peace of the gospel and therefore become peacemakers. God wants his people to know the peace of light, the peace of reversal, and the peace of renaming. These are ours through the gospel. This is who we have become. This is what the gospel offers to us and what it ushers us into. Peace. Do you know the peace of the gospel? Are you a person marked by peace through faith in Jesus Christ? If so, then you are sent. You're sent into a world of darkness, a world of pride and selfishness, a world that is named forsaken and desolate. You're sent by God into that world to be a peacemaker and a peace bringer. God changes you not just for your benefit, but so that you might be a harbinger of peace that you might help to form and shape communities of peace that prefigure the peace of the new heavens and the new earth. God wants you and me to be his peace bringers in the world, to establish communities of peace called churches and gospel communities in neighborhoods that give people a taste of the peace that is to come. See, see here's what I'm saying to you. I'm saying... Our disposition as Christians in this Advent season is not, well, let's put our head in the sand and hope that peace comes when Jesus comes back. Our disposition as the people of God during Advent is to long that we would be more and more marked by peace so that we might be peace bringers in the world and therefore anticipate the peace that is to come, the peace that is future but also present because Jesus has come and is coming again. My friends, because of the gospel, one day hope and history will rhyme. Let's pray together. Father, we professed already this morning our need for peace. We are a people not at rest who live in a world not at rest. We are hurried and busy and divided and fractured. We need your peace. Thank you for the good news of the gospel that our peace has come. The Prince of Peace, God with us, has come, lived, died, and risen from death. Thanks that you open the way into peace with you, peace within ourselves, and peace with one another. So Father, I want to pray for those who have not yet experienced your peace, that you would bring them to the end of themselves this morning and let your peace shine on them. Bring them this morning out of darkness into the light of, God, of the gospel. As you have preached to us through the light of your word, send now the light of your Holy Spirit into their souls to convert them. And Father, for those of us who know you, we know that conversion is not the end of the story. It's not as though because we are Christians now, we're just totally at peace. We're marred by all sorts of unbelief and all sorts of anxiety and all sorts of things that disturb our peace. So this morning, remind us of the good news that we have peace with you. 
Remind us of the good news that you have brought light into our darkness. That you have reversed our fortunes. That you have renamed us and called us your own. Help us this morning to celebrate that peace. To feel the depth and the reality of that peace. And to live out of that peace that we might bring peace to others. Make us agents and emissaries of the peace of the gospel for our good and your glory. Amen.